Welcome to the Miss Medical Podcast, Diagnosis Flatline. I'm your host, Destry Godwin. Miss Medical explores stories of misdiagnosis, malpractice, mysteries, and misogyny. You're my interns, and this is where true crime and medicine collide. This is Miss Medical. Welcome back to Miss Medical. When you picture the all-American man, the image in your mind would probably be very similar to that of Keith Davis. Keith was a retired Navy veteran, having served as a quartermaster, which I had to look that up in all fairness, is a key member who is involved in ship navigation, and he served on a ballistic missile submarine called the USS Stonewall Jackson. His time in the Navy meant that he was no stranger to routine and discipline in his life, though he had found the space to loosen up and enjoy life after his retirement. At 62 years old, Keith enjoyed playing his acoustic guitar and watching sports, especially if it involved his seven-year-old grandson playing golf. Though Keith's daughter, Sabrina, and his grandson lived nearly two hours away from his home outside of Brandon, Florida, it didn't mean he wasn't highly involved in their lives through phone calls, texts, and visits. Saturday, October 10th, 2020, was just like any other day for Keith's daughter, Sabrina. Well... Any other COVID pandemic day, I suppose? At 9.31 that morning, she sent a text off to Keith to say good morning. But when he replied quickly, her heart dropped. His text read, I need to go to the ER. Sabrina wasted no time and called her dad right away to find out what was going on. In the back of her mind, she had the memory of his last major medical incident back in 2008 so a full 12 years prior keith had suffered from a blood clot that came very close to permanently altering the course of his life however sabrina also knew that with her dad's history in the navy he was very good with routines and he religiously used the blood thinners he had been prescribed ate well and stayed active to avoid the risk of another blood clot He was a model patient, really. Even on long drives, he'd stop frequently to get out and stretch his legs and keep the blood moving. So while the fear always lived in the back of Sabrina's mind, she also knew her dad was doing everything possible to eliminate the risk of another clot. Keith answered Sabrina's panicked call and reassured her that it was just a sore leg. Sabrina sensed that he didn't want to worry her too much, so she pressed him for more details. He eventually told her the severity. His left leg was swollen, his knee was locked, and he was unable to walk. 
Sabrina jumped into action, getting off the phone from her dad to call an ambulance for him while getting her seven-year-old son situated with his dad so she could hop in the car and start the two-hour drive from Gainesville to Brandon. Meanwhile, Keith phoned a neighbor with a favor to ask. Could they please break down his door to let the ambulance crew in since he was unable to get up and unlock the door? When the ambulance crew arrived, they did an initial assessment on the scene and could clearly see that Keith was in a large amount of pain. Keith told them he hadn't had any sort of trauma or injury to explain the pain and swelling, and the crew decided to transport him to the Brandon Regional Hospital, which is a 436-bed facility just 10 miles from Keith's house. The ambulance crew made a courtesy call to Sabrina to let her know where they were taking her dad as she raced to meet him at the ER with her heart in her throat the entire way. Due to the wait times in the triage process at the ER, Sabrina arrived in time to be present for Keith's initial assessment by the ER doctor, who happened to be a resident. Immediately, Sabrina outlined Keith's history of having a previous clot, medically a deep vein thrombosis, which, for the sake of saving me saying deep vein thrombosis like 200 times, I'm going to call it a DVT. So a DVT is a clot that forms in deep within the veins, generally in the leg. On its own, it causes a disruption by blocking the blood flow in the leg or wherever else you might have the clot, but the real risk is the clot breaking free and then traveling to the heart or to the lungs. If it obstructs the heart, you suffer a heart attack from the lack of blood flow and obvious lack of oxygen going to your heart, which is a muscle and does need blood and oxygen to be able to work. If it travels to the lungs, you end up with something called a pulmonary embolism, which is where the blood flow to the lungs is obstructed and the lung tissue itself can die. And it creates issues with your lungs being able to oxygenate your blood if there isn't proper blood flow happening. All that being said, while clearly DVT is a serious condition that should not be ignored, majority of people survive it thanks to mandatory hospital screening procedures and quick action with clot buster drugs, or in the really extreme cases, surgery. So naturally, with Keith's history of a previous DVT, both him and Sabrina were very quick to highlight this to the ER resident. He listened to their concerns and he ordered an x-ray and a CT scan. It took some time for those results to come back, with Keith waiting patiently, unable to still move his leg. When the resident finally returned, he had a triumphant diagnosis. Fluid around the knee. Fluid around the knee. Keith and Sabrina were flooded with mixed emotions. On one hand, relief that it didn't seem to be anything sinister, but on the other hand, uh, hesitation. How could simple fluid on the knee be causing Keith this much pain? 
Sabrina's spidey sense was on high alert, but she trusted the medical professionals. Mostly just to ease her own mind that they had, in fact, ruled out a blood clot, she asked, would the CT or x-ray show a blood clot? But the resident's answer did very little to put her mind at ease. No, it wouldn't show a blood clot. That would require an ultrasound. Sabrina was dumbfounded. They had told the doctor of Keith's history with the previous DVT. It was clearly laid out in his medical records. And they weren't even doing the one test that would see it. Sabrina did what any of us would do in that situation. She asked them to do an ultrasound. She needed to be sure that it wasn't a clot. This was her dad we're talking about. So she was shocked, as am I, and probably you, when the resident told her no. She pressed again, given his medical history, surely this was the most responsible route to go. Even Keith spoke up at this point, agreeing with Sabrina and telling the resident the pain felt the same as his last clot. But still the resident said no. He assured them it was just water on the knee and nothing else had seemed to miss on the test that they had done. Sabrina and Keith relented. I mean, maybe they were just being paranoid from the previous clot. The resident seemed confident in the diagnosis, and the supervising ER doctor had signed off on the plan as well. They really didn't have any ground to stand on beyond a gut feeling that maybe it wasn't quite so simple. Since Keith still couldn't walk and was in a fair amount of pain, the hospital wasn't able to send him home until he started at least showing some improvements. The ER, of course, wasn't a place for him to stay either, so later that day he was admitted to a medical unit under the attending, and I apologize because I am going to butcher this name, Dr. Rathanam Krishnamurthy, or let's just call him Dr. Morthy for short. Due to COVID policies at the time, Sabrina was no longer able to stay with Keith once he was transferred up to the unit. So reluctantly, no doubt, she went home with a promise to call and text constantly with her dad until he was discharged. The next day, October 11th, passed pretty uneventfully. Keith faithfully followed the instructions he was given, which mostly consisted of staying in bed and waiting for the swelling to reduce. Since he still couldn't walk, that wasn't exactly a tall order. By October 12th, Keith was starting to get frustrated. The pain had not subsided, and he was no closer to being able to use his leg again. He took a video of his leg at this point, and it was in the same swollen state it had been two days prior, and he sent the video to Sabrina. He also used this communication as a chance to vent those frustrations when he texted Sabrina and said, quote, A second opinion is what I need. If I need some kind of surgery or something, I will get it done. He, meaning Dr. Morthy, doesn't seem to care if I sit here and have a clot. By October 13th, Keith was still not improving. 
At this point, in an act of desperation, he asked the hospital staff to give him an anticoagulant. Unsurprisingly, they refused. By October 14th, he felt like he was climbing up the walls. He hadn't made any progress on reducing the pain or the swelling in his leg. He still wasn't able to walk or even flex his foot without extreme pain. He had spent about as many hours as he could muster sitting online replying to various messages and emails from local acquaintances about anything from grandchild sport tournaments to diagnosing engine troubles in their cars from his hospital bed. Like any busy person, he was anxious to get back to himself and get on with his life. His chance to move on came sooner than expected. On the morning of October 15th, the fifth day since his initial pain had started, he was on the phone with Sabrina when Dr. Morthy came into the room and announced that he was discharging Keith. Well, on one hand, Keith was ecstatic. He also told Sabrina that he was still in pain and felt more or less the same as when he had arrived in the ER. He was still unable to walk or function independently, so his discharge wouldn't be for him to go home. It would be for him to go to a skilled nursing facility where he could be cared for and undertake physical therapy until he reached the point that he was ready to go home. All things considered, Keith was in pretty good spirits. He had been confined to a hospital bed for five whole days now, and he was ready to start progressing towards getting home again, even if that meant baby steps. Suddenly, though, things took a turn that nobody saw coming. Only 30 minutes after Sabrina got off the phone with her dad, at 10.40 a.m., she got a call from an unrecognized number on her phone. She answered, and the voice on the other end was a brisk voice with a very clear message. Keith had gone code blue. He was not breathing, and he had no pulse. And then she was asked the unspeakable question, What would you like us to do? Sabrina was in shock. She was sure it couldn't be real. She had just spoken to her dad and he was fine, better than fine. He was in great spirits and excited to leave the hospital. He was being discharged. She answered the same way that I think any of us would. She said, quote, you get my dad back and you do not stop until you do, end quote. Records show that CPR was conducted for 53 minutes. It didn't matter, though. Keith was gone. Sabrina waited anxiously by her phone, desperate for an update. It finally came at 11.20 a.m. when Dr. Blake Spain, the medical director of the ICU, called to inform her that all life-saving techniques were unsuccessful. Dumbfounded yet again, Sabrina numbly asked how this happened. Dr. Spain told her that at 10.28 a.m., less than 10 minutes 
after she had hung up the phone, a hospital physical therapist was in the room with Keith. Keith had tried to stand, but complained of dizziness. He laid back down on the bed and just became unresponsive. The one clarity that became sharp in Sabrina's mind was this. Why was Dr. Spain calling her and not her dad's attending doctor who had ordered the discharge less than an hour before he became unresponsive? Not willing to wait for an answer, she called Dr. Morthy herself. Whatever she had expected from that phone call, it wasn't what she received. Dr. Morthy denied any wrongdoing and refused to order an autopsy into the cause of death. He couldn't even bring himself to utter an apology. Frantic, Sabrina knew she couldn't just let this be the last chapter. She had to pursue what had really happened to her dad. With Dr. Morthy refusing the autopsy, her only option would be to go to a private autopsy, but she didn't know how to go about making that happen. Dazed but determined, she cold-called a medical examiner who happened to thankfully have a deep sense of compassion for her situation and explain the process to her. She had the private autopsy ordered that same day. On the hospital side, the Agency for Healthcare Administration paid an unannounced visit to the Brandon Hospital six weeks after Keith's death to investigate. Their finding was ultimately that the documentation and risk assessment policies for deep vein thrombosis were not followed. There had been no documented reason as to why standard DVT risk testing had not been carried out. The autopsy report ultimately found what Sabrina had already known in her heart. Keith had died from a massive pulmonary saddle embolism at the main pulmonary artery at the bifurcation of the right and left arteries. The pathologist had also indicated on his report that, quote, the use of anticoagulation therapy and a variety of measures may have altered this course, end quote. There are reports that indicate that the Florida Department of Health determined probable cause that Dr. Morthy had committed malpractice by not ruling out the DBT, but I can't actually substantiate that report because it's only something that I managed to find little bits and clips of in various news articles. The biggest blow for Sabrina, apart from losing her dad, came when she started to inquire with lawyers about a potential malpractice lawsuit. She contacted eight law firms only to be told of what is considered Florida's free kill legislation, which basically is children age 25 or older are not allowed to sue for malpractice over the death of a single parent. So if that's kind of complicated, I'm going to boil it down. Only spouses or minor children are allowed to pursue damages for pain and suffering in medical malpractice cases. 
since Sabrina was Keith's child, but she was over 25, she could not pursue legal action. And since Keith was not married at the time of his death, there was no spouse who could file the suit either. This legislation in particular is quite a hot topic, which I found a lot of discussions about during research for this case, because not only did it affect Sabrina in this case, where she felt that the errors that were made that resulted in her dad's death didn't hold any value simply because his children were no longer minors and he didn't have a wife at that time. And the legislation seems to assume that for some reason his life is worthless. But the legislation also prevents many people with disabilities and the loved ones of senior citizens to be able to pursue legal action on the grounds of medical malpractice, which is one of the most unjust things that I've ever heard because if medical malpractice has occurred where a doctor has made a critical error in judgment, whether it is by knowing that they're committing negligence or they are too busy, they are too overtired, but they have made an error resulting in death, that death doesn't only have value in people that have a spouse or have minor children. Every life has value. Even though Sabrina couldn't pursue legal action, it didn't stop her from sharing Keith's story. But the biggest blow, I mean, apart from all of the other ones we've already covered, came when a hospital attorney contacted Sabrina and offered to discharge Keith's medical bills if his children signed a confidentiality agreement and a non-disparagement agreement. This came even despite the fact that Florida actually prohibits medical facilities from collecting on charges that are related to a potential malpractice-related death. So realistically, this wouldn't even be a charge they would be able to collect on anyway. So imagine the blow that that is when they call and say, hey, we won't pursue this, but you have to just not talk about it ever again. Sabrina obviously rejected that offer and she has pursued tirelessly since Keith's passing to have this free kill law changed. But as of this recording, the free kill law still stands. Opposition forces have expressed concern that changing the legislation will open up Florida to malpractice cases, making medical insurance for physicians and hospitals more expensive, which will drive away key economic growth. But in all fairness, if a medical malpractice happens, we can't just be blindly protecting the medical providers because we're worried about the cost of their insurance. This is somebody's life we're talking about. For Sabrina, though, she just wants justice. She trusted the medical system, but ultimately, they missed a nine-inch blood clot that cost her father his life. 
All right, interns, that's your episode for today. We will be back next week with a new story for you. And we're going to be diving into some other topics pretty soon, which will include some of my favorite medical mysteries. For sources and additional show notes, follow the link in the episode summary to our website. If you'd like to see pictures related to the episodes and the Miss Medical Podcast, you can find us on Instagram as Miss Medical Podcast. If you love Miss Medical and want to support the show, find us on Patreon where you can officially join the intern team. All episodes are written by myself and aim to be as factually accurate as possible. Music is an original composition recorded and produced by Jason Chamberlain. And of course, make sure you follow the podcast on your chosen platform so you never miss an episode.